Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, now available in paperback, Stuart Stevens. Stu, good to have you. Great to be here. Also on the show today is legendary Democratic strategist and also a senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and host of That Trippy Show, available on all your favorite podcast apps. It's Joe Trippy. Joe, thanks for coming. Great to be with you guys. So I want to ask a small question today. How is it that we get our friends who are allies of democracy, our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle, our friends in the media, maybe even our friends in corporate America to understand the fight that we're facing today? How is it that it's so difficult for us to get otherwise rational, thoughtful, smart people to understand that the fight we face between now and a year from today is not the fight of 20 years ago, 40 years ago, Maybe it's 1860, maybe it's the 1880s. But Joe, let me start with you. As someone who came up in democratic politics, what do you think is a barrier to getting folks on the democratic side of the aisle to really focus on what we've got going on here in front of us? Well, we talked about this before. It is just a failure of imagination. People cannot imagine that that's the fight. I mean, it's just so tough for the press, corporate America, and yeah, Democrats, particularly those in Washington, it's that normalcy bias of thinking that everything's still normal when it's obviously not. But I think it's just complete failure of imagination. Even though the same people thought, couldn't imagine Trump being elected in the first place, they couldn't imagine, none of us could believe that January 6th could happen in America. It did. All these things that we could not imagine happened. And now, Still, that has not woken people up to what this fight's really all about. It's not right versus left. It's not Democrat versus Republican. It's anybody who's pro-democracy to fight the authoritarian movement that's clearly out there moving every day to take power by any means. And Stu, you know, the title of your book, It Was All a Lie, talks a lot about the strong undercurrent of racial bias in the Republican Party since, you know, the 60s or maybe even before. But now we're in a place, too, where there's no basis in policy anymore. There's no basis in conviction. It's really only a matter of the means of retaining that authority. But to cut through that stuff, even if they're using coded language, and we had an ad out last week that featured Lee Atwater, someone you probably knew, I know my dad knew him, who talked about you know the use of the N-word. In the 50s, you could use it. In the 60s, you couldn't. You called it forced busing. In the 80s, it was welfare queens. Now it's critical race theory. How do you convince otherwise, as I said, decent people that these code words are out there and what they're really meant is to scare some voters, divide all voters, and provide a, I think, a pretty nasty sort of framework for what Republicans will do once in office? Well, I mean, I would start by saying I'm not sure we can. 
which is one of the reasons we don't know how this is going to end up. I think that if everybody realized the moment that we are in, it would go a long way to making sure that democracy side wins. It is very difficult for people. It was difficult for me to come to grips with the idea that a party, Republican Party, that you thought was flawed, but was based in some values, that was based in some sense of a governing philosophy, has become an autocratic movement without any principles other than to seize power, power for power's sake. I think our focus has to be on those available for persuasion and that segment of it. I don't think we can do anything for Trump people, but I think that there is a need for people to deny this. I mean, I've gotten emails from old Republican friends about Glenn Youngkin in, in Virginia saying, you know, he's just a regular guy, all of this. And it's like, well, no, he's not. I mean, he's already said he'll vote for Donald Trump in 2024. He supports someone who attempted to overthrow the peaceful transition of power for president. That's not a normal person. So I don't know, except, you know, I think when the whole world goes crazy, sometimes the only thing you can do is not go crazy with it. So as we record this, folks, it is Monday, November 1st. By the time you hear this, you know, the polls will either be open and Virginians will be voting or the election will already be over. So we don't know. But, Joe, you know, utilizing Virginia as sort of the bellwether for the next midterm always seems to be, you know, an easy thing to do, but the wrong thing to do. And there's lots of wrong reasons to do it. It gets nationalized because so much of it is in the D.C. media market, because it always gets drawn into whatever a first year president is doing, you know, what Congress is doing, everything else. But it's also a pretty good reminder that we're seeing that a lot of these races are still fights at the state right? They're about state issues, not necessarily national issues. And Stu's talked about this too, but about a guy like Glenn Youngkin, he does what Rick called putting Trumpism through the car wash. He sort of zipped up his Mitt Romney suit and, you know, put his white button down on, put his fleece vest on and traipsed around Northern Virginia like a regular guy. And he's pretty darn close to pull it off. One of the lessons, regardless of how this turns out, is the need to define these guys early that's one of the things that we did do in Alabama in 2017 with Roy Moore. The, the, literally the day that primary was over between him and Luther Strange, we went on the air immediately and defined Roy Moore for what he was. A lot of Washington was, what are you doing spending that money this early and defining the guy? But then when other things came out, we'd already laid down some definition and it really played in to how we had defined the race and defined Roy Moore. It's clear to me from watching Virginia, the mistake was to not define him right then, right as soon as he got that nomination, go in hard, make sure everybody knew exactly who and what he was so that when he went out there with the fleece jacket and everything, it wouldn't work. There'd already be some arguments laid down that defined him. And I think he, well, no one really paid attention while McAuliffe thought he had a big lead. He was like Bambi traipsing through the forest eating leaves and getting bigger. <laughs> and everybody still thought, oh, he's Bambi, he can't win. We didn't really get engaged there till what, a month ago? I may not remember, but I just think that was the one big lesson, regardless of what happens here. Guys like J.D. Vance in Ohio, the second that primary's over, we've got to find the winner because they're all trying to out-trump the other one right now. And if we can do that in a bunch of places, I think that's the first lesson to have learned from all this. Well, and Stuart, I mean, fashioning your opponent's image 
immediately and conclusively, or at least convincingly, is sort of like the difference between growing an existing client and finding a new one. It costs maybe three times as much to get an old client back as to keep the one you got. But that seems to be one of those things where we even see it play out, right? Most elections, it's Labor Day to Election Day, right? Or the last eight weeks. Oh, well, now everyone's paying attention. But people probably pay more attention just by osmosis. And if you take Virginia, for example, there's something like $80 million has been spent there. You know, the time, as Joe said, to knock this guy out would have been May or June. Why is that so hard for political strategists to sort of get their minds around? I've done a lot of governor's races in very blue states where they hadn't elected a Republican in a long time. Bill Well was the first Republican elected in 20 years in Massachusetts. Bob Ehrlich was the first Republican elected in Maryland since Spiro Agnew, and Spiro didn't exactly help the brand. Tom Ridge was the last Republican reelected. And we always took the approach that you had to define your opponent right away. There's a difference between running to win and running not to lose. And in my experience, going against Democrats, and there's a lot of really you know, brilliant Democrat consultants out there when I'm on the show, a lot of them run really good races. But I think that there has been this tendency to go into it with the lead, to not appreciate the ability for a, an opponent, a Republican, to define themselves and eat up a big margin in a hurry. You know, I did Florida Senate race with Mel Martinez, and, you know, we were 15 points behind and he ended up winning. Now it's more important than ever when it's not about issues, it's not about all these stuff we used to talk about, capital gains tax or health care or foreign policy. It's about democracy versus autocracy. And if you support Donald Trump and if Donald Trump supports you, you are supporting someone who believes that we do not live in a democracy, that Joe Biden is not a legally elected president. We're in an occupied country. That should be disqualifying. And you should be able as a campaign to explain to voters why that is disqualifying. You know, Reed, I learned this lesson back in 88, watching Dukakis get defined completely out of the race for president. You know, he came out of that convention with a massive lead. And then you had Willie Horton and all these ads running, defining him. And they just kept their money, kept their money, kept their money. And the lead was evaporating. And by the time they engaged, there was no coming back. It was a wipeout. Watching that as a Democrat, I learned to find the opponent as early as possible, even if you have a lead. And I think there's a lot of resistance to that. A lot of people have not learned that lesson. Uh, the only time it didn't work was with Jerry Brown's race for governor in California in 2010, because Meg Whitman had $189 million and she spent the entire summer defining, you know, Governor Moonbeam and, the, you know, blast from the past and all that. And we couldn't do anything about it. And we had to hold our resources to Labor Day. And she had a massive lead on us and we were able to come back. But I think that's really rare to be able to do that. One of the things I've noticed, and it's a very human instinct with clients who have been in office before, like Terry McAuliffe, who did a very good job, as Terry McAuliffe did, they tend, understandably, to want to talk about what they've done as why they should get elected. That makes perfect sense. I mean, ultimately, Terry McAuliffe was not running for governor to beat Glenn Young, and he was going to run for governor to beat whoever it was. So as a consultant, you always have to struggle with that with the client and explain to them that in a lot of ways, this isn't about you, it's about the other person. And 
there is a reluctance to accept that, and it can lead you to a precarious place. Every race I've ever been involved in, it all sits on what's the battleground? What is the definition of the race? So you have to define what the race is about on your turf, on your terms. For Democrats, if you go into an election and we're debating whether you know taxes are too high or not, you're fighting on Republican ground. They still try to define the race on you know, what I'm going to do and not necessarily a definition of the race that puts Yunkin in a box, which didn't happen. And I still think that, that Terry's going to win this, but if he does, it'll be not what he could have done had he defined Yunkin early. So there's two things here, guys. One is that how much are you concerned, one, and two, how much does it matter, Joe, that if McAuliffe wins, you know, unless it was by 30, right, it won't be by enough, it was too close, what does that mean? It means Dems are screwed. And if Yunkin wins, then you know what, Dems are screwed. Is that a legitimate concern? And does it matter? Well, I mean, first get ready for it because that's going to be what the media coverage is going to look like regardless of what happens. I mean, both those negative narratives of what it means for the party are going to be out there. I agree with Stuart that it doesn't necessarily make any connection to what's going to happen in 2022, mostly because, yes, there will be governor's races that will matter in 2022. But the races for House and Senate are going to be totally different on totally different issues. And, and I think it'll be tougher for a J.D. Vance, I think, if properly defined for who he and what he really is. You know, it's going to be tougher to win those kind of races for Trump Republicans. Let me ask you this, Stu. So, you know, to put on the sort of bizarro hat that you might once have, because I know that you previously did work for outgoing Ohio U.S. Senator Rob Portman. Put yourself in the Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan from Eastern Ohio, who's likely to be the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate there. And you're sizing up the opposition. You've got Josh Mandel, who has decided to follow the Steve Bannon thing, right? Let no one get to your right. You've got J.D. Vance, who Joe mentioned, who is sort of the used to be anti-Trump, now is sort of a Peter Thiel. We must defend the American nation state, you know, white Christian America. Jane Timken, the former state party chair, who's, you know, trying to do everything she can to be supportive of Donald Trump, but stay out of sight for the time being. And there's a couple of others, you know, a couple of rich guys running. So it's like a six person primary. You know, here you are, I think it's in May. If you were sitting there seven months away as the Tim Ryan campaign, are you just, you know, hunkering down, raising money, or are you starting that definition process now, which is it doesn't matter which one of these people we get, here's what it is they stand for. Well, look, I think Ryan is the most authentically in step with where Ohio is. If I was going after J.D. Vance, my first move wouldn't be to go after all his wacky conversion to a Trump lunatic. I would go after him as a multi-million dollar investment banker who's involved in international finance. He is exactly what he is running against. If you accept his premise that the elites, that's J.D. Vance, have sold out America to foreign interests, that's J.D. Vance, I would run J.D. Vance against J.D. Vance. Josh Mandel, you know, I, I used to see Josh banging around Ohio. He was never a very good politician, but at least he was someone that you thought could get through TSA. <laughs> I mean, now I can't imagine how the guy can get on a plane. You know, he's out there saying that, you know, this whole idea of separation of church and state is a terrible idea. I mean, he doesn't believe in any of this. Which ultimately is why I think he'll probably not win that primary, because I think that the Trump people can see the real Trumpist from a phony Trumpist. 
But I think Brian has a good shot in this race. Ohio, it's always a tough state. I've focused on Ohio and the presidential races I did for Governor Bush and President Bush. But Ryan, to me, seems to be well-positioned. He's not going to have a tough primary, it looks like. He is the better athlete. And I always think that matters, you know. And he's the most likable. So those are powerful forces, I think, that bode well. You know, just one thing to say right now is, I think in all likelihood, Biden is at a low point. They have not passed this legislation. The right track of the country is way to the bad at the moment. I think if you can get this legislation passed, it's going to change a lot of the dynamic because all the stuff that they're fighting for is actually very popular. I mean, the idea you might have dental benefits for Medicare, right? The anti-dental benefits lobby is pretty small. Child tax credits are very popular. If any of it gets passed, you can then make the 2022 race about Republicans wanting to take away this stuff that you like. And that's a much better race to be fighting than where they are now. But yeah, Stuart, the one thing, though, when you look at Ohio is which of these folks running on the Republican side is the likeliest to be able to put on the fleece jacket and try to sell the BS like Yunkin has. And that to me is JD. That's why I think defining him early, if he ends up winning the thing, is going to be really important. Right. And I mean, I think, Stuart, you know, just to bring up Vance, if you see the things he says, you read the things he's written, you know, post Hillbilly Elegy, he's very conscious about not going all the way to 2020 was stolen from Trump. He wants to engage in all the culture wars. He wants to engage in all the sort of church state stuff. He wants to engage in all the Claremont Institute. You know, the Democrats are going to steal it from you. But he has not yet made that final leap across the sort of full Trump Rubicon. I think J.D. Vance looks like a weak guy. You just see him up there. He does not look like a strong figure, kind of this soft, marshmallowy guy who is saying a bunch of stuff that he really doesn't believe. And none of which, you know, his adult life reflects a belief in those values. So I think that genuineness really does matter. And one of the differences between Ohio and Virginia is there's going to be a very contested Republican primary in Ohio. And that is going to help. Given the system in Virginia, Youngkin was able to avoid that, barely, but he was able to avoid it. And you are going to see murder-suicide packs in that Republican primary. You know, Josh Mandel is going to go after J.D. Vance for being what he is. So that will help, you know, to have a contested primary when the other side doesn't have a contested primary is always a tremendous advantage in resources, messaging, planning, having a unified party, all of that. So I think it sets it up well. I think that, that Ryan can win this thing. So, Joe, let me ask you a question. I mean, as we're looking towards 22. A friend of the Lincoln Project and who's been on the show before is a guy named Tom Nichols. He's an outspoken guy. He just tweeted this a few minutes ago. He said, let me rephrase an earlier tweet. I am exhausted by a Democratic Party that constantly has to feel I need to, quote, be energized in an open political struggle with an authoritarian party. Is his exhaustion warranted? I still think the problem we have writ large, not just Democrats, but independents and a lot of people who would be part of the pro-democracy coalition to stop the authoritarian movement is that they still can't imagine it. I'm sorry to go back to the beginning of the show, but getting exhausted with people who haven't yet gotten what the threat is, we got to figure out how to make sure 
people understand the threat. And that, I think, is nationalizing the election on that battleground, that the battleground is democracy versus an authoritarian movement. If we fight it out on those terms, particularly in Senate and House races in marginal districts, I think there's a real chance to win uh, a lot of those moderate Republican women in the suburbs, younger Republicans, college-educated Republicans. I mean, there's groups that clearly have shown that they're not bought into this authoritarian movement that's taken over their party. If we're, on the other hand, still you know, letting the cultural wars shape the national election and Democrats continue to fight back on those. And as Stewart said, there's different issues in a local state election, education being one of them. The national media is all focused on Virginia as a national showcase for what's going to happen here, but it's not being fought out in a nationalized battle, right? It's being fought out on culture wars and local issues in Virginia that may not be out there in 2022. I don't think they will be. I was trading messages with an old friend and colleague of mine uh, today, lives in Northern Virginia, you know, worked at the White House. We were, I think, at least on the 2000 campaign together, you know, very anti-Trump. But what he's saying is, and again, this is, you know, a one guy focus group. So take it as anecdotal is that, you know, education, Joe, to your point, is the issue for a lot of his friends and neighbors, not because of what's being taught in the schools, but because their kids weren't in school for a year. And they're still pissed off about it. His word was visceral. They're still viscerally pissed off about it. So, you know, and maybe this is far more true at the state level, which is those issues that affect folks' individual daily lives come into far more focus than, you know, something like a democracy. So can you mix those two things or do we need to fight a dual sort of envelopment strategy next year, which is finding the issues that matter to voters, swing voters in, you know, key states? while fighting the national level like you guys did in 2002 around a threat? Well, I think the way to fight the education issue in Virginia for McAuliffe was to point out that Yunkin sends his kids out of state to the price of $40,000 a year to a school that teaches what he is opposed to. They don't teach critical race theory because really nobody teaches critical race theory outside of law school. And they have mask mandates. Severe mask mandates. So, I mean, what a complete phony. He doesn't want to protect your kids, but he'll spend $40,000 a year to make sure that his kids are educated correctly and protected. That's not a guy you'd like because very, very, very few people can spend $40,000 a year to send their kids to a school where they are teaching Tony Morrison and they have mask mandates. So you can't believe anything this guy says. He's not involved in the Virginia education system. You as a Virginia parent, you are. So I would have gone right at him. It's a legitimate issue, and it shows what he really believes in, what he really values, and would have tried to uh, define him on that issue. So, guys, as we sit here now, again, it's the afternoon of November 1st. You know, give me your crystal ball, Stuart, on is there going to be a touchstone for this 22 race, or is it a grinded out district by district, state by state slog, and it's all too close to tell? I mean, we're a year away, right? And so plenty is going to happen. Sitting a year out, how do you feel? Well, I mean, you have to be realistic. This, you know, we keep saying this is what three times in the last 125 years that the party in power has gained seats. So it's bad to bet against the House. The House usually wins. Redistricting is going to help Republicans more than it's going to help Democrats. Now, I think that there is a path for Democrats to come out of 2022 having gained seats. 
I think it's a difficult path, but I think it is along two paths. You have to make the cultural issue patriotism and saving the country. And you have to be not afraid to say that's what the stakes are. You have to be not afraid to say that these people want to end democracy as we know it. There is a hesitancy to do that because you don't want to sound alarmist, but you got to get your mind out of that. You got to go out and say that stuff. And you've got to make it about what you're going to lose if Republicans win. And that's your democracy, but it's also hopefully what they're going to get passed here. And those are things that are going to affect people's lives. You know, a border wall doesn't affect many people's lives, which is why in most polling, Medicare for all tested better than a border wall. So you got to get out there and you, you got to be aggressive and you got to get in their face and you got to define them and you've got to commit to a strategy. You got to dig the ditch you're going to die in. And you can't ask yourself, is there any guarantee that this is going to work? Because there won't be a guarantee it can work. There never is. You just have to convince yourself that this is the only way that it will work and execute that and put all your chips on that table and push it forward and fight like hell. I think that we can gain seats in the Senate and I think we can hold the House, maybe even gain a few there as well. But I think it all is dependent on, I think, two things. One, there are going to be primary fights on the Democratic side, too. Who do we nominate? What kind of candidates do we, we nominate in 2018? We did a great job of recruiting and nominating candidates that were able to win in those marginal House seats. I think looking at some of the people that are running out there already or thinking about it, I think there's a really good class of candidates that will be out there. If they can win those nominations, that's one thing that has to happen. Second thing is learn the lesson of Virginia to find the J.D. Vances out there as early as we can. And then third, we'll get to the same thing. Who's turning out? I believe that there are a lot of Democrats and independents in particular that, yes, it'll be the issues on the table, but I think that they understand the urgency that democracy is on the ballot will turn out. And we need to make sure that that's there too. So there's like three things I think that need to happen. And the other side of this is, I can tell you from you know, being on Doug Jones in 2020, you know, defund the police. I mean, we would have lost anyway, don't get me wrong, but we would have lost by eight or nine points, not 18, 19 points. Things like that, that the Republicans are very good at, particularly this authoritarian strain, are very good at exploiting things into a full-blown culture war like the border wall even though it's not as important in people's lives as Medicare, as Stuart said. So I think that's the fourth factor that I'm worried about is somebody somewhere says something and the next thing, the entire echo chamber of right-wing media that's been built immediately just echo that into the bloodstream and exploit it. And the Republicans and Fox and everybody starts to do the same thing. We haven't built that on the, whether you call it Democratic side, pro-democracy side, whatever, it's just not there. The mainstream media is still covering everything as he said, she said, instead of arguing that this is democracy versus authoritarianism and, and deciding how they're going to cover this stuff. And so the fourth thing, how the media covers these things is really going to matter too. That is something that I have noticed even in recent days is that once that right-wing outrage machine gets spinning, it plows through everybody and it scares everybody, especially national political media and Democrats. Why is it, guys, that, you know, regardless, Joe, if there's an ecosystem that fights back against that, 
why is everyone's first move to run away, right? In the fight or flight instinct, the flight seems to be the first most predominant instinct when that stuff happens, as opposed to saying, wait, these guys are freaking nuts. Are you kidding me? This is the argument we're having? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that is there is no such thing. There is no ecosystem on our side. It's Lincoln Project, Midas Touch. I mean, there's different groups out there that are trying to fight back against the disinformation. You know, look, the thing they've built over decades, and they've perfected how to make it take off and turn into a fire. There is no way to do that on the other side, on the pro-democracy side of this fight, because Lincoln Project's been around for a few years, and it's only one. There's not a whole pro-democracy coalition that fights against this stuff. And then you've got the mainstream media who I think it's worked. They want to prove that they're not the lamestream liberal media. So if Afghanistan happens, they'll report that Biden did something right, and they'll jump all over anything that goes wrong and say he did it wrong. And the other side is Trump can do no wrong. Trump can do no wrong. And there is nothing like that. You've talked about this before, you know, the horizontal versus vertical of both parties, that top-down messaging structure and literally, you know, bowing to the top, to Trump, makes it very effective at pushing out a message and channeling that rage. And there's no such thing on the other side. And that's one of the reasons I joined you guys, because I thought we need to expand it and bring other groups out there and hope other people start it up. But there's all these different reasons why the information flow and that outrage scares the living daylights out of a lot of good people who don't understand we have to fight back. It was Clausewitz who said that war was the extension of politics by other means. Well, you know, politics then is the peaceful way to do this, but it's still war. And I think the other side has perfected getting that, using the political system in a warlike manner to take control. And it's not in the DNA of a lot of people of goodwill out there to think of it in those terms. How do you fight that kind of stuff? And it's not playing by the old rules and realizing that you've got to take really strong message, action, and fight back just as hard as they're fighting. Yeah. And, you know, Stuart, just to think about this. So, you know, during the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant said he would fight for nothing less than unconditional surrender of the Confederacy. You know, 80 years later, Franklin Roosevelt at the Casablanca conference says the same thing. And you might ask yourself, okay, how can people fighting for, in the 1860s, the Union, or in the 1940s, democracy, not just in the United States, but everywhere, use such harsh and frankly violent terms? And it was because they both knew that nothing less than a complete and total victory over those forces would stamp them out. And even, I think, as Steve Schmidt has noted before, the stamping of those things out is always a temporary measure. There's always embers left in the ashes. But, you know, we should remember, you go back to World War II, that was a very controversial statement to be for unconditional surrender. You look at how many people in the English leadership circle wanted to come to some negotiation, some terms with Germany. There was a huge fascist movement in the United States. And that by calling for unconditional surrender, we were leaving them no honorable way out. But Roosevelt was committed to that concept. So it goes back to what leadership matters. I mean, there are a lot of people that 
obviously thought the Civil War was something that should have been avoided. I mean, we still have that debate. It was critical. I mean, I say this as a seventh-generation Mississippian. It was critical that the South be crushed. Look, I get this sense in all these years I ran against Democratic candidates, I often had this sense that they want to be liked, that they want to be approved by some sort of vague intelligentsia out there. And that's a bad place to be. You don't want to be that candidate. You want to be the candidate that will do, particularly in this moment, when the alternative is the end of democracy as we know it. You want to be the candidate that is going to win at pretty much any cost. If you really believe that this is an existential threat to the country, you really believe that, you will respond in a certain way. If you don't, and you've just kind of fallen into that Republican trap where it's just kind of a marketing slogan and you kind of half believe it and you half don't, you're not going to be up to the moment. And that's the open question before us. And I mean, that's my biggest concern right now, guys, is that we have one party that creates the fiction and pushes it out on the world. And unfortunately, we've got the pro-democracy party that lives in a fiction that they still want to be real. And I think that puts us all in a tough space. Well, listen, gents, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm always so flattered and humbled to have you guys on the airwaves. Before we get out of here, Joe, where can everybody find you online and where can we find That Trippy Show? Well, on Twitter, at Joe Trippy, And That Trippy Show, wherever you found this podcast or your favorite podcasts. We had a great podcast this week with Hunter Walker, who wrote the blockbuster Rolling Stone article that exposed what Trump's chief of staff and six or so Republican members of Congress were doing to plan that thing. So it's worth a listen if you can. Absolutely. Yeah. So listen to that trippy show, follow rate five stars. And Stuart, where can we find you online? One place, Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. And everybody remember that the paperback edition of Stuart's must-read book, It Was All Lie, is now available on Amazon or your fine bookseller. As always, everyone, you can find me online on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to thank again Joe and Stuart for joining me, and everyone, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.